we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 199 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Scott. A.k.a. the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And, of course, always joining us, seemingly always, is um, the Dwarf Man. (laughs) Greetings, Earthlings. Um, Yes. A.k.a. The Twelfth Man. The Twelfth Man. <laughs> For those of you new to the podcast, Paul came in as the Twelfth Man to sort of fill in when we were when we had an injury, an injured player, and we needed to fill in. And he's such a valued contributor that he appears every week, and indeed has his own group of fanboys who <laughs> listen in now just to listen to the to the Twelfth Man and his words of wisdom. <laughs> Congratulations, dear listener! You have stumbled on this little Australian podcast where we talk about news and politics and uh, things going on in the world and somehow the Google or the Facebook algorithm or your strange circle of friends has led you to this little podcast. It's it's not easy to get here, uh, dear listener. Um, we only have about 250 to 300 listeners. Uh, so given the population of Australia, I think the chances of you listening was about one in 72,000. So you've, you're, you're in luck. It's like winning the lotto. We'll do our best to entertain and inform and give you an alternative view of what's going on in the world, a little study of society course, focusing mainly on Australia, but all the important things going on in the rest of the world as well. So stick with us and see what happens. We've got a number of topics. We've obviously got an Australian election coming up soon, so we'll be talking about that a fair bit. And we'll be having a chat to one of the candidates from a minor party uh, John August from the Pirate Party is going to come on and, and we're going to talk to him and see what he's up to. So in the meantime, gentlemen, I unfortunately subscribe to the Scott Morrison Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just filled with Scamo and his family, just with Scamo doing his daggy dad stuff out and about. And it just makes me want to vomit every time I see it. And he just thinks he's great in front of the camera. He obviously thinks he's a talented performer and that this is what people want to see, that our Australian Prime Minister is just an average, ordinary, everyday guy having a go, getting a go, blah, blah, all that nonsense. But um, Bye-bye, during the sort of Easter weekend, it was supposed to be a bit of a truce in, in sort of electioneering where out of respect to the weekend that they would go a bit quiet on on how much they were doing. Anyway, Scott Morrison invited the media into his Pentecostal church service and there was various photographs of him as he was raising his arm and praying to the Lord and calling on Jesus and all the rest of it. And he obviously thought that that was a great idea, but I reckon, Scott, 12th man, that that's one that could potentially backfire. It could potentially backfire on him. You know, it's... I know Australians tend not to talk about religion unless you're a, unless you're a regular listener to this podcast. You probably don't talk about religion. But 
One of the things that Australians are a little bit nervous of is the born again clappy, clappy, happy, happy, clappy, happy, clappies. Mm. You know, the whole thing, the the pictures of it were really quite. I'd almost go as far as to say distressing. Mm. You know, where he was there, he was raising his hand, and you know, I love you, Jesus, and blah 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 blah. And I thought to myself. Jesus Christ, we have really hit rock bottom. <laughs> I think a lot of Australians, a lot of the average, everyday, have a go Australians that he keeps talking about, are going to look at that and go, you knob. <laughs> so I think it's back. I think that's potential to backfire. I'm not, not convinced, I have to say. I'm not convinced either. I'm hopeful. I, th- I think Scott Morrison and a lot of other Australians see church going as fairly harmless, if a little boring for most of them, but it's, it, it lends an air of um, respectability to mm. people. You know what I mean? And maybe that's what he's trying to get across, is that he's the, the honest broker in uh, federal parliament. You know, because he goes to church, therefore mm. he must be honest. He must be decent. He must be law-abiding and, and therefore trustworthy, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait and see. But I, 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 I hope that Australians are just very, very wary of this evangelical style mm. of faith that he's Any of part them. of. Yes, but particularly <laughs> this American evangelical oh, style. Yeah. I hope that they're wary. Mm. It's actually brought into focus, well, what is this Pentecostalism that Morrison subscribes to? And... There's an article by James Boyce in The Monthly, and I love this line from it. He said, Pentecostalism is, in fact, the perfect faith for a conviction politician without convictions. Mm. And the reason for that is the whole Pentecostal thing is uh, it's about personal experience over dogma. The religion's starting point is not the written-down teachings of Jesus, the moral code set out in the Bible, or instructions of an institutional church. It's, it's all about the vibe and feeling <laughs> Jesus and having him enter your life and just loving Jesus and accepting it's... Jesus into your life and he's our Lord and Saviour. And, and that's all you've got to say and you're a Pentecostal. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, a real wariness and fear of the devil who's, who's a genuine force in the world. But it's a, He's it's a, real. Satan is real. yes. So the Holy Spirit enters you and you do the speaking in tongues, but you just feel the Lord. So mm. if that's what your uh, faith is telling you, which isn't much, then you've got an excuse to do anything. You can, you can um, basically keep uh, asylum seekers out of the country and turn back boats and things on the basis that they're evil Satanists or that's just your feelings at the time. It's a, it's an open book, really, as to where you, what direction you go on any particular issue, except I reckon these groups are always tied up with the whole um, prosperity gospel thing. So mm. if you are rich and wealthy, it's because the Lord is favouring you because yeah. of the good deeds that you've done, and it's a sign that you're actually a, a good person. Mm. That's a, a sort of a key plank of these mm. new age groups. But otherwise, any sort of um, ethical dilemma, they could pretty much 
jump either side of the fence depending on how Jesus talks to them at the time. Yeah. Do you know your mention of, of uh, you know, the, the experience being the thing for each individual, it almost sounds postmodern, doesn't it? Yes. It sounds like the sort of um, charismatic intersectionality brand of um, postmodern Christianity or something. Yes, there is no truth. It's just how it's experienced It's how you experience it. It's how you interpret the vibe or the, the you know, yes. whatever the Holy Spirit is There's doing no inside you. There's no objective rights or wrongs. It's yeah. just the feelings that you have and how they, how you relate to it. And they're not necessarily Pentecostalists, but the charismatic Christian, you know, evangelists, televangelists are sort of cut from the same cloth, if you ask me. And, and we know how they tend to make things up and, and bend Scripture to suit their personal um, needs, so mm. to speak, you know, like... Mm. Uh, you know, every every dollar you you mail to me, you know, will be a, a blessing from God. And a seed. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yep, yep. they carry on with so much <laughs> utter bullshit, don't they? Yep. But they get rich off it, mm. so something must be um, working for them. Yeah. And maybe Scott Morrison is sort of banking on the same sort of effect. I don't know. There's lots of things that would be fascinating to know. Mm. Like, does he tithe part of his prime ministership mm. salary to yeah. his church? Does 10% of the prime minister's salary go to the church? Oh, I suspect it does. It probably does yeah. because uh, otherwise if that sort of news leaked out that, that he wasn't, Mm. It would be very bad for his reputation. Well, yeah, who so knows? He probably look. He can afford to. Let's face it. The prime minister's salary is uh, reasonably, uh, you know, generous. Mm. Three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars. I think it's at it? least four hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm. So, so even losing half in tax, he can still afford to give twenty thousand a year to the um, ah. But to the you church. see, the ten percent is on your pre-tax income. Oh, is it? Uh, yes. Oh well. well oh, sorry, Scott. In the Mormon <laughs> Church, it certainly was. Yeah. Not sure if it is in the Pentecostals. Yeah, but perhaps who Couldn't knows? Tell you. Mm. Uh, the Mormons are grass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. I'm They're sorry. all a pack of thieves. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, in this article from James Boyce, he says at the end of it, if for no other reason than this dangerous delusion, a d- delusion being that if he wins it will be because God delivered it, mm. Australians deserve to know no- more about what the leader of our country believes. Pentecostalism might not be a cult, but in terms of what ordinary people have been told about its true teachings, it may as well be. They're all cults. Mm. Those charged with scrutinising our politicians should put aside the national discomfort about discussing religion and do what they would if a political leader subscribed to any other little-known ideology. Morrison must be made to tell us more about the faith that has shaped his life. Good point. Completely agree. Lee Sales on 7.30, next time you're interviewing that numbskull, start asking him about his religious beliefs because they do impact on the actions he will take as Prime Minister. Yeah, but Mm. then he'll answer it the same way he did that time with Ray Hadley, wasn't it, where he said, uh, you get to ask me about my policies, mate, not my faith. Well, Well, sorry, uh, Scott, but we do get to ask you and we have a legitimate reason for asking. Yeah, because some of your wacky ideas might be transferred across into government policy. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, Dear listener, if you're new to this podcast, um, we have for many years been uh, working on the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index. If you go to our website, uh, Wazza has been helping me out lately and updating it and adding more information. 
So where we know the religious affiliation of any particular federal politician, we've listed it, and if they've made statements which to us indicate they are either pro or anti-secular, <clears throat> we have um, provided links and information and we've given them a score from zero to ten mm. as to their secularity. So check it out and see uh, when you're voting uh, in this election coming up, you may be, there may be some interesting facts about your politician that you did not know about. So that's in our secular index on the website. Right, before we talk to John August, which will be soon, Notre Dame burning down, terrible thing, but we're talking about, we're talking about providing donations to this church. It was amazing how quickly the donations materialised, wasn't that it? That was what was really offensive. Now, here's something that was on Facebook that was posted by my good friend in Wales, Sharon, and her daughter Abigail listens to us as a... Um, Hi, Abigail. Uh, Abigail, Sharon, how are you both? Um, they both listen to us. Sharon posted something on Facebook, a tale of two fires. Grenfell Tower, 2017, 72 people die. 22 months later, 60 families still to be rehoused. Mm. Notre Dame, 2019, no one dies. 24 hours later, £700 million pledged. Now... <laughs> Our priorities are just so stuffed. It's they just are. People, at the end of the day. Can you not see that world? That's just—it's a church, mm. you know. Now I know that the churches and that sort of thing in France are owned by the government. They are actually owned by the government. Mm. They took them over in nineteen hundred and five. Yeah. And therefore, this is a problem of the French taxpayer. It should not be. If, if the Sydney Opera House burnt down tomorrow, I wouldn't. The, ex, I wouldn't be expecting the French government to shell out money for it. I wouldn't. No. <laughs> now you would, yeah. honestly, really. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a matter for it's a matter for the country that he resides in. I honestly thought to myself at the time. I thought to myself, well, I bet the French government regrets taking over and party. Well, look, it brings to my mind Mother Teresa. She used to traipse around the globe, receiving generous donations from. You know, country leaders. Mm. You know, including the dictate the ex dictator of Haiti. Mm. You know, who had millions of people living in dire squalor in his own country and he gave money to Mother Teresa to, to funnel to the Vatican Bank. And, of course, it was just for him, you know, probably buying, what do they call it, buying... Indulgences. Indulgences. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to get himself into heaven. It, it's just all part of the... It's, oh. it's been... Dear listener, I'm a little bit down because it's just been a depressing week. Like the calibre of... Debate. This has been terrible. You just can't trust these bastards on anything. We can't. The whole point. What can we do to cheer Trevor up? I don't know. But um, the the thing about Notre Dame, and this is something that I've spoken to the better half about. Neither of us can understand the outpouring of grief. It is, at the end of the day, a building. Mm. Now, yes, it's ancient building. It's eight hundred and fifty years old, or something Mm. like that. It's a tragedy from historical point of view that it went up in smoke. However, it's at the end of the day, it's just a building. Plus, a lot of it's still there. I mean, the majority of it's still there. Exactly. It'll be redone. It'll be relaunched. Buildings like this are fire damaged all the time throughout history. Like, it's not unusual, is it? Well, so didn't the Germans do right. something to it when they occupied the city in the Second uh, World War? Well, Hitler wanted um, significant French monuments to be destroyed Did and it? there was a Why? German commander who refused. So ah, there was that's right. I so there was that, um yeah. 
Was that a, uh, out of spite on yes. Hitler's part? Yeah, um, and his propaganda and whatever. Mm. But uh, he ordered the um, Eiffel Tower and other places like Notre Dame to be destroyed, Seriously? and a French and a German commander basically ignored the order. Mm. Wow. So that's interesting. Mm. Right, let's get let's try and get uh, John August on and mm. see how we go. So I'm going to try and. Call him now with a bit of luck and see what happens. Dear listener, I have on the line John August, who is a candidate for the Pirate Party in the upcoming federal election. He's going to be standing in the seat of Benelong. And John is is also... Is that true, John, or not? We've had a change of plan. My original plan was that I would stand in the seat of Benelong, but our number two Senate candidate uh, had to pull out for personal reasons. So I've now transferred from Benelong to the uh, you know New South Wales Senate, which is a bit of a sacrifice because I have stood for a few elections and built up some momentum in Benelong. But I suppose it's better that more people across New South Wales have the opportunity of voting for us. Right. Oh, okay. So, okay. So, oh, that's good. So, anyone in New South Wales listening to this podcast can can get to know you during this um, next segment, John. So, okay, standing for the Pirate Party. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, For those who don't know you, you're a member of a few, you're a member of an atheist group, I think, and a few other things, or humanist. I'm a vice president of the New South Wales Humanists, and I was previously involved in the Secular Party. I think I might have gotten involved in the Pirate Party way back when, but obviously a few years ago I jumped ship and uh, got got involved in that. But, you know, there's various different community groups I'm involved with. I mean, there's the Non-Smoking Movement of Australia. There's the Australian Electric Vehicle Association of Australia. So I have my own electric vehicle, and I was listening with interest, you know, your discussions about electric vehicles Mm. uh, a a few programs ago. Yeah. and let's see what other groups can I think of that I'm a member of. There was the Sydney Outdoor Lighting Improvement Society. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I suppose I'd have to have to sort of sort through my, my, my brain a bit. Oh, yes, there's also the Less Wrong group. Um, they're sort of a bit, bit folded these days, but they're a, a sort of a pro-rationality group. So, you know, yes, quite a number of groups that I'm involved with. And there is uh, the New South Wales Humanists in, in New South Wales, obviously, humanism, which is a, a development of atheism. Right. And you've also got a spot on a community radio program once a week. That's correct. Trevor, I did actually have you phone in. That was when I had uh, Babu Goganeni in. And I suppose I also have... Um, you know, that's obviously broadcasting for on Tuesdays from noon till 2pm uh, on 88.9 FM, which is Radio Skid Row Sydney, and you can go to www.radioskidrow.org and, and get the stream, and that's, uh, what, Tuesdays from noon till 2pm. And that's right, Trevor, you have actually been on that show and, and phoned in when I was interviewing a guest from India. I might try and play a bit of that interview at the end of this podcast, John, for those who haven't heard it, and they'll get to hear what sort of show you've got there. So... John, Pirate Party, why should anyone in New South Wales vote for the Pirate Party? Well, because we have a a critical view of what's wrong with society. We have a lot of, 
I guess, views that are sort of taking a bit of a tangent on things, which we think are very nuanced and balanced in a way that none of the uh, major parties do. And, and we're also a bit better than the Greens in some ways. But basically, let's say we're, we're radical and economically nuanced without disappearing down the rabbit hole. Um, without being what I think the Liberal Party, which is what's left after all the, the, the vested business interests have had a go. But, you know, we do believe in the freedom of the individual and we can see a lot of that being curtailed in, uh, in, in government at the moment. And the fact that, like, say, the Greens have gone on with the assistance and access bill. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of bills that have been put in that have limited our freedom since uh, since 9-11. And, you know, it's my view that the government has been using security issues as, as a smokescreen to basically just clamp down on us more and more. And that's something that I do see as unhealthy. At the same time, we also have a strong uh, secular element to our policy. You know, we do believe in, you know, access to abortion, voluntary euthanasia and so on, and a, a secular society, uh, separation of church and state. So we're also quite strong on those things. Yep. So Just on the, freed on the freedom issue, so the yes. origins of the Pirate Party are to do with, it, it comes from sort of pirating of, of software and music and things like that. Is, is that right? Which is... Is, is that, that, is that, that the is, origins that is, of the party? That is correct. Once upon a time, there were people who were copying software and the business interests that were sort of critical of that were sort of declaring them to be pirates. And mm. the pirate party came out of that. So one of, I mean, obviously I've spoken about, you know, individual freedom and so on. But one of the things is we do come out from that sort of recent development on the internet where we are concerned about the corporate overreach into intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So we're not one of these sort of, I guess, what you might call loopy libertarian parties that only says that government is a problem. We say that both government and business are a problem and that the privileges of business and, and rent-seeking and so on are problems. Now, mm -hmm. there was um, uh, Dr. Cameron Murray who wrote the book um, game of mates and I think if, if I were correct you have actually covered some of his original papers where he was looking at like the crossover between uh, people in councils in, uh, in in Queensland and financial benefit that people related to those people have so you know so there is a whole understanding of like how corporations can abuse the situation and at the same time as government does. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you're right. We, we've come out of that experience and you might say we are critical of both business and government and we're critical of businesses' attempt to overreach in terms of intellectual property. Yeah. And so so just, just to um, try and uh, in some ways it might be easier to just uh, do some broad brush things here. So economically... Would you be closer to the uh, the liberal national sort of view, or would you be closer to uh, the Labor sort of side? What, you know, which side would you most likely fall on economically? I, I think one way of looking at it is to say that we are closer to the Liberal Party, but there's a whole lot of um, qualifiers to that. Yep. For example, we believe in a universal basic income and a reverse taxation system, which is basically giving money to people uh, merely because they've registered themselves, not because they have to jump through hoops and prove that they are work looking for work. Yep. But at the same time, we celebrate 
genuine business initiative. But the thing is, we see a very strong difference between what you might call genuine investment and, I guess, positive business activity mm-hmm. and mere speculation, transfer of ownership, you know, basically shuffling deck chairs around the Titanic abusing your monopoly position either in a real monopoly position or sort of like intellectual property rights basically there's a lot of business that is abusing its situation and the liberal party doesn't properly recognize that Mm -hmm. we celebrate what we'd call real business initiative but our emphasis is very different to the way the liberal party goes as i say i guess it's my bumper sticker summary that your liberal party is what's left after all the all the business interests that can flex their muscles have had a go Right. So what would you do to um, sort of deal with that, you know, big business monopoly sort of power earning profits? What, what, is there a policy or not? Well, we, well, one of the things is you want to get rid of, say, the, the abuse of intellectual property. And we're mm-hmm. talking about winding back patents, copyright, and a whole lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Now, if, and, and also, I guess, promoting uh, renewable energy, because that, that is another area where businesses have that, that vested interest or that over degree of power. But I, I suppose the th- thing that we're also talking about is uh, doing universal basic income, which means we're giving the opportunities to the people at the bottom end of the feeding chain and sort of saying, look, we're, we're giving you the ability to lead useful lives regardless of what the big end of town are doing. So I guess that's not directly um, talking about your your issues there, but certainly we have a more general concern about rent-seeking. Let's say, it depends on where you want to say rent-seeking is, um, you know, there's obviously intellectual property. We have a whole sort of things about uh, a patent fee that patents need to be used in order to be protected, while at the moment companies can just get this whole swag of patents and put them on the shelf, and they're using mm-hmm. them defensively. And that's what we see as an abuse of that intellectual property. Mm-hmm. If you have a patent on something you're actually using that you're selling into the market and people are benefiting from, okay, cool. If you've got a whole bunch of patents sitting on the shelf, that's a bit dubious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's one area where, where you have that. Yep. Now, as far as property development goes, let's say, you know, we do believe in the whole, um, you know, Henry George, uh, you know, land value taxation thing. But if you look at our policy, we, yes, it's part of what we're about. But, you know, we do want to get rid of um, that, that, that privilege of negative gearing, you know, repla- repla- replace it with uh, – with land value taxation. So that sort of starts to put a bit of a break on the uh, – it starts to put a bit of a break on what's going on with the property market. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to, to mining, I guess you have the, the thing of the corporations paying appropriate uh, royalties because one of the things that a lot of mining firms, be, be they locally or overseas, they run around saying, look at the taxes we pay. But really the royalties they pay to the national government – uh, are more like if you stay overnight at a motel and you pay the owner for staying at that motel overnight. You know, it's a fee for use. It's not really a tax. But I, I think a lot of the, the language around these things um, is, uh, you know, basically people use this emo- these emotional connotations of the word tax when really the situation is a lot more complicated. Okay. Now, and, also- and just... Um- so I've got a good picture there, I think, economically. And what, how would you differ from, say, the Greens? Where would, where would your differences be there? Okay, well, one of the differences is 
this is this is I guess an invitation, and obviously you've got to be bothered. But if you look at our policy compared to the Greens, and I invite you to do this, it's a lot more detailed. It's referenced. It sort of lays out the principles. It lays out the references for the principles. It lays out the conclusions. While really, if you look at the Greens policy, they are rather lightweight. Mm-hmm. And the thing about us is that we do believe in freedom from government interference. So the Greens have actually gone along with the the um, you know the access bill that I was mentioning earlier, and they've gone along with a lot of the government things that are uh, increasing the the level of government involvement in our lives, government surveillance, and so on. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is the level of detail. We have a very considered policy around. Uh, a very considered policy around universal basic income and tax reform, which I think is a lot more far-reaching and also, I guess, economically nuanced and informed. I mean, uh, that, that that is a thing. We are, I mean, no party claims to not be based on evidence or reason. But I guess if you look at us and you compare us to the Greens, I would strongly say, look, we are the much more evidence-based party based on the way we lay out our policies, the way we construct them, the way that they are referenced. So that's, I guess, a, a more general thing about how we approach policy, policy development and what we put forward. Uh, but, uh, you know, I suppose in some ways maybe we're more pro-business in certain ways than the Greens are. Yep. Uh, and I, I think, you know, all our policies are carefully costed. So it would be nice to have a universal basic income that gives people at the low end more money. But we thought we want to have this costed. We want to have it, you know, budget balanced and so on. Okay. Now, um, John, so how many – Cand- how many how many candidates will there be around Australia? Like, will you have candidates in every state, or not, how, not it's, it's, I know it's difficult for minor parties to field candidates oh, in, and, and it's, so it's no criticism if you don't. But I'm just curious as to how many you're actually going to have this election. Uh, Okay, at this stage, I believe we've all been, uh, you know, approved by the Australian Electoral Commission, but basically that's eight candidates around Australia covering four states. Mm -hmm. So that's Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia. And I know we don't have candidates in the other states, but I guess it's a matter of doing what we can with the available resources and interests that we have. Mm, But, yeah, that's that's a short answer. Eight candidates, two candidates in each state for the Senate. It's a good effort for a small minor party. Like, it's not easy to field eight candidates um it's it's hard so so how are you going to cut through john like you know realistically being on this podcast is not going to get you more than <laughs> a handful of votes potentially well you're swinging me like i'm i'm thinking in queensland why not yeah. but um but uh, you know how are you going to cut through and get anybody to hear about the pirate party this is the difficulty for minor parties isn't it Yes. Well, let's say there are a few things that we are going to do. One is that we're obviously going to you know, hit the railway stations, hand out our material and so on. Now, the other thing is, look, I've had experiences. Uh, unfortunately, I can't leverage my local um, interest because it used to be I stood for Ben along and the local papers and various local things would actually take an interest in you, which would give you an opportunity to, to put forward your, your platform. And the other thing is, look, I've plugged my radio station. I'll also plug my uh, website, johnaugust.com.au. And that's not totally gratuitous because I, I've written a lot of political commentary articles. 
and you can tell close to an election they get a lot more hits. People are taking an interest in things. Mm -hmm. So there, there's part of me that's saying what's going on here. And I suppose you, you've contrasted me to or contrasted our party to the the Greens. And there's also, I've mentioned the Secular Party. And there have been times when, in spite of the fact I'm in the Pirate Party, I've actually gone into bat on behalf of the Secular Party because I felt that New South Wales dying with dignity was not treating them fairly. So there have been times when I've gone in and said, hang on, you know, the, the Secular Party is worthy of more, uh, more oxygen from you guys. But mm -hmm. the, the thing remains that we basically are Okay, this is a claim. Okay, it, it sort of remains to be seen whether it will work out. But with the Pirate Party, we have a name, we have vibrancy, we have energy, and we have the ability to tap into what you might call the, the, the people who are IT literate, who are worried about the internet, and uh, people who are worried about civil liberties. Now, look, the, the Secular Party did have its concern about civil liberties, but let's say I don't think the Secular Party ever really cut through. Now, I'm not saying we will necessarily cut through this election, but there have been past elections where the Pirate Party really has, I, I guess, been that much discussed in the IT world, in the civil liberties world, that it was making a splash, a definite splash, more so than the, more so than the secular party. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that will happen again, because I suppose to try to answer your question, quite apart from just the generic promotion that we would be doing we are trying to tap into the contacts we have in the it world and the civil liberties world and people who are concerned about government and you know the rights of individuals and in a sense how that whole uh, security state thing is unfolding at the national level okay so john the greens, on a, on a practice are standing up against that effectively john on a practical level then the julian assange sort of um story where do you fall on that one are you sympathetic to julian or what, well, where do you fall i think that the short answer is we are sympathetic to julian assange the whistleblower mm -hmm. we are sympathetic to wikileaks the institution now i've seen too many credible stories about uh, julian assange being quite the arsehole in terms of how he's related to women, in terms of how he's gone down, you know, right-wing conspiracy theory rabbit holes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that is a definite concern. But I do believe that the US basically has got it too easy. They are a bully. They can coerce Australia. They can coerce various nations and say, look, you're going to agree with us because we've got the big stick. And that having an having an independent foreign policy is a good thing. Okay, so I'm going on a bit of a tangent from Julian Assange, but to try to answer your question, we believe in whistleblowers, we believe in open government, we believe in scrutiny of government, and we believe that Julian Assange is uh, in that vein mm -hmm. and he need, deserves to be supported as a whistleblower. Now, I actually channel the experience of Daniel Ellsberg who did the Pentagon Papers. I don't know if you know about that whole story. But uh, he, he, he was sort of doing a, quite a considerable leak during the Vietnam War. And if I can summarise the experience of Ellsberg, was that the, what you might call the, the intelligentsia, the, the bureaucracy involved in the defence, they did two things. One was that they deluded themselves because there was this whole groupthink thing where they basically didn't engage with the realities of the v Vietnam War and deluded themselves. But then also, when they actually figured out something that was actually going on, 
they withheld it from the American public for political reasons. And the idea that in the past the U.S. military bureaucracy uh, were basically abusing the security for political reasons and doing groupthink and befuddling themselves, the idea that they used to be bad yep. and now suddenly they've gotten good, <laughs> I find that very difficult to believe. I'm with you and, there. You know, so, so, you know, there is the whole thing of, oh, you know, there are all these leaks and they've, they've compromised operations, and I don't believe that's the case. It's more the excuse that's being run with of, yeah. oh, you've, no, you've made these leaks and put people's lives at risk. John, and um, I don't believe I, that's the case at all. I'm with you there. Now, John, you've listened to our podcast for quite a while. That's um, true. Yes, I have. Yeah. At different times, we would have said things that you've not agreed with. You want to take us up on anything at all? You know, you want to... Do you want to, was there anything that you'd okay, say, well, God, you guys talk about this all the time and it really, you know, it's just wrong? Like, here's your opportunity, okay, John. There are, there are a few things that I will say that I guess we believe in, you know, freedom from uh, racism at the same time as we believe in freedom of speech. So let's say on the one hand we are talking about repealing 18C because we have a strong... Uh, belief in freedom of speech. Great. And that's another thing I think that distinguishes us from the Greens. Mm -hmm. We do have this much stronger belief in freedom of speech that people do not have a freedom not to be offended, but they do have the right of privacy and I guess the right of a private domain. But I, I, I do think that there are times when you guys are I guess, you know, it's the old cliche speaking from a position of privilege and that there are people who are, uh, you, you know, ba basically b badly done by the system and we need to be more sympathetic to them. And I know you sort of go, what's this sort of uh, cultural identity stuff I think you, you, you sort of talk about at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think that there you've got it got it wrong. You, you should be more sympathetic. And I suppose the sentiment I would say is, you sometimes do talk about, I guess, Aborigines being racist in their own way. And I do tend to think, look, in a technical sense, what you're saying is true. They are racist in their own way. No, not but not I think them, as long but as the policies as as that our government has. They have the privilege John, of being John, 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 stop, stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not them, but there are certain policies that we say are racist. So we're not saying that Aboriginals are racist, but we're saying that the policies are inherently racist. I, I, re I remember you were having a go at this um, you know, soccer match or football match between the Aborigines and the Maoris mm. and, and saying, what the hell are they thinking? Mm. I personally think that's just the uh, Aboriginal and Maori sense of humour showing solidarity rather than labelling that as racist. But my, my sentiment is, broadly speaking, as long as they're oppressed, they can be a little bit racist at times and I'm willing to forgive them. If they were not oppressed then you might start to say, hang on, these issues, that the racism on that side is, is now John, worth John, worrying could you, about. could you imagine in the United States an, an NFL football match or a baseball match which was blacks against whites? Um, I, I couldn't imagine it being, um, a, let's say, a mainstream event. But you could That's, imagine... Um, well, we're talking uh, mainstream when we're talking the NRL Indigenous All-Stars against the NRL Whitefellas. Could you imagine... Uh, yes, but the th thing is, that, that's like... Could, what I'm saying is, I think that what you're describing is possible in the sense of a private, friendly game 
outside of the mainstream competition. Okay. But I'm, my question was, was in America, my question is, in America, could you contemplate Major League Baseball or the NFL having a black guys versus white guys game? I couldn't imagine it happening in the mainstream, and, but and I, what could would imagine, they say? I could imagine a civil rights group having a game at the local field where they did put blacks against whites, but they're all metaphorically on the same side, pushing the same legal barrel or whatever. Mm. Not the mainstream, but basically this bunch of friends basically having a bit of a joke with each other. I mm. could imagine that happening. I think I've made my point. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what else do you want to disagree with on, with us, John? Anything okay, else? there is also a uh, Bill of Rights. Now, yes. we, ba- we basically promote a Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. and I know that you've sort of gone against that at various times. Mm. Now, our, uh, I suppose in our case it does fit into a broader context where in terms of personal freedom, people don't have the freedom not to be offended. You know, we want to repeal Section 18C. There's a whole lot of things where in, in one sense we are actually freeing things up. Though when we talk about the, the, the Bill of Rights, we're saying on the one hand, people should be free of government intervention, but they should also be free to do stuff. So the Bill of Rights covers the, the thing that we should be free from government intervention. Uh, and, and I do tend to think that if we actually had a decent Bill of Rights, all these erosions of our personal freedom that have happened under the cover of security, I think they wouldn't have happened. Now, obviously, and John, what's my main reason for being against the Bill of Rights? I think you're saying it could have unintended consequences and it would have it would be inflexible and uh, uh, no, no well that's, not, that's, not close that's no that, but it's a transfer of power from the parliament to the judiciary because uh, you then empower the judiciary to decide what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed with the bill of rights well again we are talking about stopping the government from interfering in other people's in our in our lives so for example i'll just give you i'll just give you a little i'll just give you a little example like we've got a situation in australia of uh abortion clinics where there were christian um activists who were picketing outside abortion clinics and demanding the right to basically hound the women as they entered the abortion clinics um, with Bible verses and and saying, you know, you're killing this child, do not go in, and really harassing people entering abortion clinics. And our state governments have drafted up laws to say there are safety zones, that you cannot conduct such activities within, say, I don't know, 200, 300 metres of, of an abortion clinic. 150 yep. metres in Victoria. So you and I, I think, John, would say that's a good idea. Yep. Okay, so... Um, or not. Maybe not. <laughs> that is a good law to pass, but right. the thing is these laws are ad hoc, I suppose. That is, okay. that is so, the so, problem with... So it, we're in it, agreement it, it that that's... It is a valid law. We're in agreement that that's a good law. So there was an appeal against those laws taken to the High Court where the uh, appeal basis was that there's an inherent freedom of political speech right inherent in the Constitution, like just as part of a sort of a smoky sort of effervescence that comes out of the Constitution, no particular the provision, the, the vibe, yeah. indeed, that, um, that meant that people uh, could legitimately uh, say these things in these exclusion zones and that the um, 
state government laws were invalid as a matter of constitutional law. Now, um, our High Court, despite there being no Bill of Rights in the Constitution, has kind of dreamt up in the last couple of decades a nebulous, smoky freedom of political speech right that they've just, they've just dreamt up out of nowhere. And this went all the way to the High Court, who in this case said, no, uh, it doesn't apply in this case, the state law is valid. But there was an outside chance that the High Court would have said, oh, uh, you know, the state law is invalid and people can protest, like, you know, people can make these statements in these exclusion zones. Now, I personally think that's not the sort of thing that High Court judges should be deciding. That's up to our elected politicians and we can then boot them out if we disagree with them and and get in another group who can make a change. But when it comes to... Uh, if, you get a, if you've got a Bill of Rights and you've got very activist judges who, who take powers that they dream up and suddenly start striking down laws and creating their own laws, it's, it's a dangerous situation. And the only way to change it is to either change the Constitution or change the High Court judges. Extremely difficult. So America's getting itself into all sorts of trouble because of its inbuilt Bill of Rights and judicial activism. And so it's, it's a dangerous process to put in place. So that, okay. John, is my reason for being against a Bill of Rights. Okay. All right. Well, I have something to say in reply. Now, to some degree, I'm in, inspired by a gentleman you actually had from South Africa who was saying that the problems you describe are basically because the Bill of Rights isn't written sufficiently well with sufficient foresight. And I do remember you had a guest that on the program. It was Robin Bristow. And the problem with the, the Bill of Rights, though, John, is it necessarily has to be vague and general. I, hang, and, hang on. And no, it, I disagree with that, but continue. And, and yeah. it will necessarily involve conflicts because you will have the freedom of religion conflicting with the freedom of speech. So uh, yes, no, the, invariably, the is, I, but go on, okay, go ahead. Okay, well, the thing is, you have imagined the Bill of Rights where it just chucks all of these rights into a jumble without putting them into any context or any framework. And I imagine that's probably the way that Bill of Rights associated with South Africa was written. But let me read out a few things from our policy platform, and I'll, I'll sort of try to say that. Mm. The following rights and freedoms should only be construed as applying to natural persons as opposed to corporations, etc. Where conflicting rights or freedoms are found to occur, the resolution should be based on the greater overall good. The individual is the ultimate minority, and I think you'll, you'll resonate with that. And these rights are to, designed to protect the private lives and rights of individuals. Broader rights, which are often assigned on the basis of belonging to an identity group are less prominent as these potentially impose subjectivity, conflict with other rights and drive burdensome litigation. Rights and freedoms not mentioned here may be granted through other laws and where not covered by law are left to the people. Rights and freedoms should be considered to apply collect collectively. And when it comes to communication and expression. Basically, it, yes, there's no right to, be, to not be offended by the free expression of thoughts or beliefs and others, but basically you can't have direct attempts to bring about the use of force against another person, intentional false statements of fact. Um, so 
uh, this right does not Im Im include a right to be heard or impose a duty on anyone to listen. So the right to express an opinion will be protected without ex exception. But the, the thing is, the way the laws are written, or the way that this Bill of Rights is written, it emphasises the individual and the freedom of that in, those individual acts. And if I can find the appropriate paragraph, it does talk about um, freedom of thought, conscience and belief includes freedom from compulsion to adhere to another's belief and protection against imposition of such beliefs through law. Now, that's the critical phrase, I believe, that we're talking about the freedom of an individual to conduct their lives, to basically trump the ability of somebody else to interfere in someone else's life. Now, I would say that a properly written Bill of Rights actually addresses your concern, and our Bill of Rights basically has enough structure there. I mean, we are even talk acknowledging that rights and freedoms should be considered to apply collectively. We're acknowledging that you can't just chuck them all into a pot and hope that things will work out when some of those raw, some of those rights might be potentially in conflict because you build the ability to resolve those conflicts into the Bill of Rights. John, so individual rights will still conflict with other individual rights. Well, I suppose the emphasis of the Bill of Rights is to protect people from arbitrary intervention by government, not to sort of mediate, you know, disputes between individuals. So the thing is that the individual's right to pursue their own lives would be the sacrosanct thing. So I don't, 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 uh, don't believe in your argument. I still believe that our, our principles of the Bill of Rights is a good thing. And that basically we, a lot of countries have either a Bill of Rights or similar structures and we do not. And do, and again, any, of, I, and do I, any of them have a better human rights record than Australia? I believe they do. Which you're, one? You're, 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 well, you're press, pressing me to, uh, to, to come up with that. Uh, okay, well, give Besides me a Finland, to read, which to is read, our favourite country. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, there's, well, there's any will, number of countries with a terrible... One, but I, I, I'm willing to send you a text or an email okay. in the next one or two days. Yeah. But I, I okay. believe... We'll agree, to, John, dis we'll agree to, to disagree on that one. There, there was a story that the gentleman from South Africa did actually say that there was a better progression with respect to same-sex marriage look, uh, that resulted Robin from the Bill the of point. Rights. Robin made the point that there was a, uh, a benefit that occurred in South Africa, but... But that was because it just fell that way on that occasion, on that particular conflict. So it could fall the other way on another conflict. So that, that's the uh, inherent well, I problem. Well, I think you were saying, look, give us one nation. And you've e even provided your own counter-example. I mean, if you're going to make such a broad-reaching claim... South Africa doesn't have a better human I, I, rights record than Australia. I haven't claim of that magnitude. I'm just saying we're going to improve things, you know? Yeah, but you wouldn't say South Africa has a better human rights record than Australia. John, just a question from the Velvet Glove here. Would you want that to be a constitutional Bill of Rights or would you want it to be legislative? Okay, let's see. The Pirate Party will sponsor a referendum to introduce a Bill of Rights as a way to protect basic liberties. So... Doesn't sound okay, like a well, a, a bill, bill of Rights suggests that it's actually something that comes out of Parliament, so rather than an amendment to the Constitution. No, okay, no, I, I, I tell a lie. We propose a referendum to alter the Australian Constitution and include a Bill of Rights codifying a basic set of human rights and freedoms. All right, so I guess I should be more familiar with our policy. Sorry about that. No, no problem. No, that's no problem. Any, any other... We'll agree to disagree on that one, John. Any, Absolutely. Great, we will, it's, yeah. great, it's great to have a pushback. <laughs> so what else, what else have we said that you would... 
disagree with any any other issues or um i got believe it or not apart from one or two things that that would be that would be the struggle i suppose That's you do good. tend to gr- gr- grind the axe about um this, this doesn't surprise uh, me because we uh, we we would basically um Bill of Rights, Aboriginal issues are the sorts of things where we disagree with the... And identity politics issues are the issues where we disagree with the left. Um, but otherwise, we've got a lot of left-leaning sort of ideas, I think. So, yeah. I think when it comes okay, to a Bill of Rights, I mean, my position on the Bill of Rights is if it was legislative, that's not so bad because if you find the courts are being clogged with ridiculous nonsense, then you can sit both parties down, you can amend the Bill of Rights, and then you move on. But a constitutional bill of rights, I think that's bloody dangerous. And I, I honestly believe that because you've got the US that's got a the the Supreme Court in the US has misinterpreted the Second Amendment. It's a, you've now got this ridiculous nonsense that anyone can carry around a machine gun, you know, and that is because it's a constitutional bill of rights. Mm. Whereas I, if it was a legislative bill of rights, then the legislature could actually amend that bill of rights, and then you could move forward. Okay, well, put, putting aside that uh, that to one side, as, as I, I guess Trevor has said, yes, there is one more thing I can think of to disagree with you, and that mm-hmm. is uh, the way that you're criticising identity politics. Mm-hmm. And Why? let's say that there, there are certain excesses, and you want to say, oh, look at this loopy thing that's happened in this university over there in the US. And I will nod and agree with you and say, look, that's loopy, that's an excess, that is wrong. But there's still a degree to which you are, I guess, painting a caricature of identity politics and the way that people do actually relate to it on the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, I've read articles where, uh, I guess, you know, people who you know are both bat, black and lesbian and so on are actually talking about the problems that they find with the lack of community and, and the judgment around language that exists in that community. So, in a sense, if there are problems, there are people in that movement that, that are recognising those problems and engaging with them. And I suppose there is this caricature that, you know, you just sort of pile on all these different, you know, identity issues like whether, whether, you're, whether you're black, whether you're gay, whether you're this, whether you're that, and that, that you sort of say that it just ends up being a tangled mess. I disagree. I think it's worthwhile identifying these injustices together and treating them as a whole at times. Now, that's that's just more of a general disagreement with, I guess, the way that you've related to these issues and I think the caricatures that you have painted from time to time. But at the same time, you do also tell stories about loopy things happening in universities and I will shake my head as you will, but I guess where I'll differ is the broad brush picture you sort of build Hello, John. Let's see now. Are you back with us? I'm working on... Okay. Okay, you 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 can hear me now. Yeah, yep. For some reason you dropped out. But basically you were saying that you disagree with the broad brush approach that we take. And what I would say is that our broad brush approach would be more a case of people who are claiming special privileges because of their differences rather than seeking equal rights despite their differences. So... We are of the Martin Luther King sort of style where we say, you know, don't judge by the skin colour but judge by the content of the character. So um, that's, you know, I don't think we've done too much on loopy 
crazy university intersectionalist sort of feminist movements so much, particularly because that's the sort of thing that Jordan Peterson loves, and I'm very much <laughs> anti-Jordan Peterson, as you would know, John. Yes. That's, well, okay. Well, that that's perhaps, uh, uh, I think, perhaps a minor issue because I'd yeah. really have to sort of – uh, check the notes because yeah. you know my, my broad brush thing yeah. is that yeah. you do identify yeah. loopy stories and I will shake my head as you do but yeah. there, there's other elements where I uh, get a bit concerned but yeah. I, I think quite honestly I suspect that's actually exhausted the list of things that well, I disagree with that's and not I, I would say you, you were having an interesting discussion where you were going around the, the circuit a few times when you're talking about Venezuela and US foreign policy and so on yeah. and I tend to be a lot more on the side that is critical of U.S. foreign policy, though I say it is not impossible for them to do good from time to time. But, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure that I – because the thing is you guys were polarised in different sides on that discussion, so I might disagree with with one of you but not not everybody there. All right, John. Well, that's a good um, background to the Pirate Party. So with the election coming up, um, there's four states at least where people can consider – Voting for the Pirate Party, and we might have other minor parties on here between now and the election. Maybe the Secular Party guys in Victoria might come on. I don't know. But anyway, I reckon you've given a good... I mean, we don't for one minute expect everybody to agree with us, John, so... um, Well, well, I I would say the only way of having someone in in, uh, politics do exactly what you want is for you to be the representative and independent (laughs) and get yourself voted in. And, uh, you know, even me, I mean, there's trade-offs I've had to make, but I think in broad terms, I'm I'm on board 90, 95% with with their policies and Mm. it's probably as as good as you could ever hope to get. Mm. Very good. All right, John. Well, uh, thank you for coming on, and we'll we'll talk to you again, no doubt, some stage down the track. We'll, we'll talk to you okay. when you're a senator. Um, remember us, okay? Yeah. I, if if I become a senator, I will not forget you guys. And I don't know whether you want to pass this on to your listeners, but quite honestly, me getting in would be a fluke. But then again, it did happen <laughs> to that gentleman with the motorist enthusiast party. Indeed. So my, my broad brush sentiment would be: it is not likely, but it is not impossible either. Mm. Yeah. Um, Good on you for I, I, at least having a go because, honestly, you know, there's been more intellectual debate in the last 20 minutes between us over issues than the major parties have done over the last three weeks with the nonsense that's been going on. So, exactly. So, yeah. Good on you, John. And, and, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very okay, much. Thanks, yeah. right. Bye. See you, John. That was John. Mm, that was John. quite interesting. Yeah. It was, yeah. Interesting character. Member of a number of groups, eh? Hey? Like yeah. We rattled him off at the beginning. Probably do another podcast with him. Just one of these other yeah. groups doing electric car group and humanists and... What was that and, um, outdoor lighting society? Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. So there you go, dear listener. If you, don't, if you reckon you don't have time for stuff, look at John. He's out there with any number of groups. Yes. So, right. Back to where we were. So, look, last week... Um, Israel Folau, what a fantastic <laughs> topic. And talk about people not agreeing with us <laughs> because there's plenty of disagreement in the Facebooks and whatever over, over our comments and we couldn't agree over stuff. But what a great topic the Israel Folau thing is. And it was made the best comment of all, which was because it was a footballer or he is a footballer, it's, it's got the attention of people who normally would not talk about the conflict of rights and freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, and drag these people into a debate that they normally would not be part of. So 
for that alone, thank you, Israel Folau, if nothing else. So one of the things I forgot to mention last week was that... Um, so my key argument with Folau was it's basically an employment contract issue. So we're not talking about the wider sort of society discipline of this guy. We're talking about an employment discipline of him. And in that sort of wider society debate that wasn't really relevant, um, in the Law and Religion Report, it made the point that uh, under New South Wales law, the Anti-Discrimination Act, it's unlawful to incite hatred towards, serious contempt for, or severe ridicule of a person or group of persons on the grounds of the homosexuality of the person or members of the group. So... Hmm, serious contempt, severe ridicule of homosexuals is unlawful. What about, uh, look, I'm, you know, at certain times in my life I've been a drunk and a fornicator. Yeah, I don't think... And I'm still an atheist. <laughs> I don't think fornicators and adulterers were in the Are we not protected? No. Well, they weren't a group that was, protect, that was protected, indeed. But the section actually has, section 49ZT, subsection 2, subsection C exempts from that prohibition any act done reasonably and in good faith for a number of things, including religious instruction. Can you believe it? Yeah. So, so it's an exemption under the Act where you do something in good faith um, for academic, artistic scientific or research purposes, and it also includes in there religious instruction as a specific exemption. What that really Just, you can, pisses me off. Something is unlawful as a vilification, but it's okay if it's a public act done for in good faith for religious instruction. That's, Do you really need to have that as a... I, th I think that's not a bad thing, actually. I, mm. think, I think because in a liberal society... You know, if you allow people to pass laws against so-called vilification, mm -hmm. which is a fuzzy concept anyway, then you allow people, you know, interest groups, if they potentially hold power, to pass laws against people they just disagree with, don't they? I'm okay with an exemption because I'm, mm. I'm with you. We mm. should be encouraging free speech mm. in the at a society level. Mm. Um, but surely it could have just said a public act done in, in good faith and in the public interest without adding because religious instruction religious, as yes. one of the, the go-to sort of areas. It's just another example of religious privilege, really. Yeah. Mm. So that was that. Um, look, in the last few weeks, well, in the last week in particular, attention is turning to... It's been a, it's a sad week, really. We had on Q and A James McGrath, who gave a performance where he one of the other panel members on Did Q and A. Watch Q and A. No, but I just saw the highlight <laughs> bit of it. I, I can't, I can't do that to myself. But one of the other panelists basically made the comment that well, Adani made political donations and sort of hinted that that was why the government was falling in favour with Adani, and James McGrath said he was truly shocked at the suggestion. He said, I want to address that, the good senator thundered. I'm outraged. I'm actually outraged about that. It's actually offensive to any politician on this panel 
or anywhere to say that the Liberal National Party or people who support the Liberal National Party are taking policy positions based on donations. Heaven forbid. That is actually offensive and it is wrong, he said. You know what I'd like to say, say to that, <laughs> Senator? Who cares if you're offended? Yep. Offence should not be even considered in this. Right. But, you know, the suggestion that the LNP or the Labor Party accept donations from interest groups, well, that's not exactly news, is it? It's and not, that, but why, why do people donate to political well, parties? Why, indeed? Because they think they're going to get something back of in return. Of course they do. Exactly. And yet if you ask those big donors, do you, know, you know what they say, don't you? You know the standard response, because we wish to support the liberal demo- democratic system of this country. Yeah. Well, by, by providing money to one group, which no, actually distorts the democratic well, process. They often donate to, to both sides, both major parties, but you will, if you look at the numbers, there'll often be a discrepancy between the amounts, depending on who they prefer. It's, mm. It depends on... It's, if you look at that, uh, there was a... Three, four weeks ago I was reading something. They were saying that the corporate donations to the Liberal National Party have dried up because the consensus of opinion is that they're screwed. And that right. the Labor Party is going to win. Okay. And they're suggesting that the donations from corporate Australia have gone more heavily to the Labor Party this time than what they would normally. Interesting. Mm. See, so in this article from um, uh, Fitzsimmons, uh, what's his name? His first name, I can't. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, Ex rugby footballer. Peter Fitzsimmons? Uh, I think it is Peter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it must be. Um, He said that last week the Pharmacy Guild of Australia made a donation of $15,000 to One Nation. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Why do you think? Because they support One Nation policies or because they hope for One Nation support on legislation concerning matters important to the Pharmacy Guild? I mean, which one is it going to be? Because they want something that's important to the Pharmacy Guild. God, you guys are cynical, aren't you? Well, of course it, we're cynical, but it's a bloody... There's no just, way we should be allowing these donations. Exactly. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It, you know, I have said this before. I've said it two, three years ago, that we should be banning donations except from natural human beings. That means churches, lobby groups, companies, unions, all the rest of it should not be allowed to donate to political parties. Should be all and individual. And then a limit on what an individual can donate. Absolutely. $1,500 a limit, you know. To an, an amount that really isn't going to influence anybody. Exactly. So. And then after that, what's that, what that's going to do is it's going to force the political parties to go out and recruit members. Yes. And then if you've got an engaged public that's involved in the political process, then you're going to have a meaningful um, movement that's going to be powered by people. Mm. And it would be bloody good if we got all the damn nonsense off the television anyway. I, you know, I honestly believe it would probably be a better thing for our democracy if it was more down to earth. Dear listener, do you want to know what, who's donated what to our political parties? I've got a link under the heading Democracy for Sale. Who donates what? There's a link there showing you can just... Um, you might think to yourself, oh, I wonder if my employer, you know, you might work for Deloitte or you might work for KPMG or you might work for um, Glencore or you might work for any big company and I oh, wonder if they donated to a political party. Plug it in and have a look and it'll tell you. So it's all there in a spreadsheet. 
uh, or in a, in a sort of a searchable web page. So there's a link there. Um, on that link, you'll find a few examples of why they say it's so important that we know who's donating. And they say that the salary sacrifice industry went from never making a political donation to making six-figure payments every year to the major parties in order to stop the revival of a short-lived policy that threatened their business model. Dear listener, if you're running a small business, you can basically lease a vehicle and pay for it through pre-tax dollars and it won't be considered fringe benefits. It'll be part of a salary sacrifice arrangement that you can sort of do. Uh, and, yeah, but the and, employer still has to pay fringe benefits tax on it, but it is... It works out to be slightly better for you if you can get your get your car paid for that way. It reduces yeah. your pre-tax income. It reduces your pre-tax income. Yeah. So it's a benefit for the motoring industry. Absolutely. That there is yes. this special deal mm-hmm. that they have mm-hmm. that doesn't apply to other industries. Mm. And the salary sacrifice um, arrangement was under threat when Kevin Rudd was talking about uh, getting rid of it. So the Australian Salary Packaging Association um, gave their first ever donation of $250,000 to the Liberals. And Tony Abbott declared that if elected, he would not proceed with the measure. And Abbott won and he dumped the measure as government policy. And then a new peak body started making donations to both parties, totalling $357,700 $357,700 in the lead-up to the 2016 election. So why would then you pay May these two, amounts so that in, these... Well, he comes in. Yep. Then in May 2016, two months before the federal election, Labor opposition leader Bill Shorten wrote to the industry to assure them the tax break would not change. Yeah, by which stage $200,000 had been donated to the Labor Party. <laughs> exactly. And shares in the industry boomed by 8% after the letter was made public. It is just criminal. That's why we've got to get rid of the corporate donations. Yeah. Speaking of corporate donations, in the last week, we've had this strange thing about this water rights in the Murray-Darling Basin where basically uh, the government paid a company money... $80 million? ...for the water that they would not use. Mm -hmm. And the Labor Party is saying that they paid well over the odds for that water, that it was flood water that should have been bought cheap rather than premium water that was worth a high price. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, I was reading that uh, the initial asking price for the water was $300 a gigalitre less than what the government ended up paying. Mm. Funnily enough... This particular company, Eastern Agriculture Australia, has made donations totaling $55,000 to the New South Wales Liberal Party in 2012-2013. And, and that's just one little pastoral company, isn't it? Yeah, well... Or a, a cotton little, growing or whatever they do. A little pastoral company based in the Cayman Islands. This yes. is the worst part about it, dear listener. Our government is paying a company money to not use flood water, and it's a company that has made donations to the Liberal Party. A director at one point was Energy Minister Angus Taylor, Mm. and it's listed in the Cayman Islands. Really? How 
How much more do you need to be outraged? How much tax do you think came off that amount for any you know, national government? Bugger all. Nothing. Dear listener, if you're new to this program, you, uh, in episode 192 we posed the question, guess which country's companies were the biggest buyers of Australian farmland in 2017-2018? And the answer, dear listener is the Bahamas, yes. who bought 2 million hectares in a single year. And we're allowing this to happen. It's so... This is why I'm depressed. It's, it's not really a country known for its interest in <laughs> agriculture, is it? It's known for one thing. Tax dodging, isn't it? That's, that's what, what it's known for. So that's democracy. And, um, you know, one of the things that's got me worried is Clive Palmer. So... <laughs> You know, Clive is throwing a hell of a lot of money at this election, but it can't. It's not going to pay off for him. No, Scott, I, dear listener. Oh, this is on the front page of the Courier or the Australian today, wasn't it? Well, the Australian has an article about this. So, I, dear listener, subject myself to a subscription to the Australian so that I can get a right wing view of the world and. Which Landon Hardbottom generously supports. Yes, Yes, thank you. Yes, (laughs) and. They've given the example of four marginal seats where um, basically um, United Australia Party, Clive Palmer's party, will determine the outcome. Herbert in Queensland, Deakin in Victoria, Lindsay in New South Wales and Pearce in Western Australia. Uh, There's four seats there where um, Palmer preferences will almost certainly decide the Election. Yeah, but he's not going to get any representation, though, is he? Uh, well, is he going to make it into the Senate or I not? I couldn't. I don't believe so. You know, is he running on a Senate ticket? Is he's he running on a Senate ticket in Queensland. Queensland. Yeah, I hope not. But honestly, who in their right mind would vote for that man? I with, couldn't. With everything we know about them, exactly. how could you possibly think? And yet, he's such a did. Trump-like character. And, Surely, and well, this is the whole. I can, I can understand people voting the first time. Yeah, but, but then after that, you'd think that they would be waking up to it, and they'd think to themselves, "Jesus Christ, what the hell did I do?" Hmm. You know, because the man was just a f-ing moron. Hmm. Pardon the language, but he was an idiot. Hmm. Anyway, dear listener, donations are a problem. Uh, Clive Palmer is an example of a one percenter who can has way too much power. There's another uh, place you can go to look up these sorts of things. It's called Burn the Register. Look up who owns what. Do you know, dear listener, that if a politician, you know, buys an investment property, buys shares in a company, um, receives a gift, some wine from a constituent or from um, somebody that they're dealing with, they basically uh, just sometimes or often just handwrite on a form, oh, I have this financial interest now, and they lodge it with the Parliament House bureaucracy. Mm. And it's been extremely difficult to basically look up what these politicians own because they're, they're just in a PDF format, often handwritten and really hard to sort of search. So there's been a group called Burn the Register where these people have actively gone on, read them all and entered them, entered them into a database and you can now look up what your politician owns and have a list of all of their assets and their uh, ins and outs of their, of their assets. So 
good on you, burn the register, for making that available. So that's worth looking at. You've got time. Absolutely. Mm. Assisted dying, did you guys get a letter in? I sent one in, yes. Good, good. All three of us. Three out of three, dear listener, in Queensland, if you didn't send a letter in, shame on you. (laughs) We'll see where that ends up. Um, I think it's going to come down to whether or not the LNP gives its um, side a genuine conscience vote, Mm. you know, because they had a conscience vote on the abortion issue, but they turned out afterwards that there was no conscience vote. Mm. Um, I'm holding in my hands uh, election 2019 produced by... um, the shovel and the guys <laughs> from the chaser, and it's a great little book of all of the, the upcoming federal election. And it's you know we've been reading lots from the shovel lately. And here's an extract from their election guide for 2019 <laughs> on the seat of Dixon. So they've done this for every seat in Australia. They've done a little funny little blurb. And for Dixon, it says sitting member Peter Dutton, main opponent, basic mathematics. Uh, <laughs> One of the most hotly contested seats of this election, Dixon is held by just 2% by Immigration Minister Peter Dutton. Before entering politics, Dutton worked part-time as a parking bollard at a multi-storey car park in North Brisbane. Overwhelmed by the demands of the job, he joined the police force in 1990 and has pretended to be a police officer ever since. Described by close friends as emotionless, austere and slightly unsettling, the childcare industry was the obvious next step for Dutton. <laughs> he and his wife set up a number of childcare centres across Brisbane with Dutton's role to ensure that every last fucking child had its papers in order. <laughs> and this, uh, it's just full of it. It's a great little uh, program. So if you want a bit of a laugh, then go for that. Mm. Uh, I think Peter would be laughing mm, if he was listening. I think he would be, yeah. Right. Oh, Landon Hardbottom. He's been speaking to ScoMo, so we've oh, just got he? yeah. Oh. So we'll just we've got a little bit of Landon Hardbottom to play. How so. does he get so close to ScoMo when we can't? I think the political donations thing oh, might be part. Of, <laughs> I, I suspect yeah. uh, that's how Hardbottom gets it. So let's let's see what Hardbottom's been up to. Cheryl, get the girl to answer the phone. <laughs> What do you mean? Who let her out of her cubicle? Well, never mind, I'll answer it myself. Hard bottom here. Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Cheryl, it's the Prime Minister. Yes, the election. Win back the minority vote. Show them what the LNP truly stands for. There's no political nut that a card bottom can't crack, Prime Minister. We're on it right away. Cheryl, we've got to win the minority vote. What have you got for me? I like where you're going. Don't be a homo. Vote for ScoMo. But look, let's make it a bit more blokey. Um, If you'll give it a go, you'll get a go with ScoMo, even if you're a homo. That's inclusive. What else have you got? Ah, the Jews in Wentworth, yes. Uh, Let me see. Um, Even though you murdered the Messiah, we don't think you're pariah. To show you we forgive, we'll move our embassy to Tel Aviv. (laughs) Brilliant. I tell you, Cheryl, when I get to Canberra, everybody in that boys' club's going to want a piece of this hard bottom. (laughs) 
Thank um, you, thank you, Landon. Did Landon just say that he will move our embassy to Tel Aviv? Oh, did he? I he did. Yeah. Oh, okay, he to meant from Tel Aviv. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. Just a say. small detail. Okay. Absolutely. I think he called himself Cardbottom at one point. Oh, as did well. he? Okay. I think he might have been drinking a bit too much <laughs> from his John Howard commemorative shot, shot glasses, glasses. <laughs> the ones that are left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dear listener, I am still experimenting with chapter marks. So if you've got uh, downcast or you've got overcast and you're on iOS, you'd be able to look at chapter marks and there will be a picture there uh, of Landon Hardbottom's profile picture. So for that reason alone, and I'm still experimenting on how to get that done on Android. So if you're on iOS, you'll be able to see the Landon Hardbottom profile picture. We had some lovely feedback from Nico, who signed up as a patron Got to say a huge thank you, gents. I've been looking for an Australian podcast that met my interests but wasn't always an echo chamber for my positions. You constantly make me reconsider and evaluate the way I think and can be counted on to give a fresh perspective. Decided to become a patron today because I thoroughly enjoy your show and I hope to see you guys knock down the door of the ABC and put a secular show on the airways. Keep up the top work. Cheers. And Tom sent a link about chaplaincy and said... I enjoy the podcast purely because it asks questions of my own views, particularly on feminism, racism and identity politics. I doubt I would have continued to listen if I agreed with everything that is expressed. Keep up the good work. And Wheat Watcher, who left a five-star review, said, I have only been listening to podcasts for around six months. This is one of the few which I have been able to stick with. It is refreshing to see differing viewpoints on a number of subjects as opposed to the typical echo chambers which seem common in many current affairs podcasts. Well, there was a theme in all those, wasn't there? Yeah, so, it was, getting rid of the echo chambers. Yeah, yeah, don't have to agree, and and it's good to disagree, provided we're all civil about it. We disagreed with Paul last week, we disagreed with John this week, but we're all still <laughs> friends. <laughs> um, what else have I got to say? Oh, Watley sent something as well. I pronounced... Uh, oh, Celtic, Celtic, yeah, Celtic. Yeah. He said it's a hard K sound, um, and there was a bit of explanation of Latin. And thank you, Watley, for that. Uh, mea culpa, or mea culpa, no mea culpa. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And he also agrees with me on Venezuela and taxing wealth as well as income. Um, yeah, actually, he and I had an exchange on that. Right. Yeah, where I said that um, I felt it was double taxation to tax someone based on their wealth because, you know, wealth accumulation has to be out of post-tax income. So I said that what you've got to do is you've got to have a tax system that genuinely catches the wealth, or genuinely catches the income from that wealth, and then you can tax them and that type of thing. I also agreed that um, we should have an inheritance tax. Anyway. But you're happy with a capital gains tax. I'm happy with the capital gains tax, yes, because right. that is that is a income but that is generated from an asset. Yes. Yeah. So the thing about capital gains tax is it doesn't actually come into effect until there's a trigger. Exactly. And the trigger has to be a sale or exactly. a death. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, counted no, as an effective. No, the death is not the death does not trigger a sale. It triggers a transfer of the assets. Yes. So it transfers the assets to the new person that inherits it. Yes. And then that income from that date forward that is generated on that asset becomes accessible in the hands of the person when he sells it. 
Yes. But so if somebody's got an investment property, yeah. mum and dad have an investment property. Yep. And they've got one and, son. And yes. And, and, and on their death, mm-hmm. uh, they'd both die in a car accident mm-hmm. and give it to the surviving son. Mm-hmm. That then triggers a capital gains event. No, it doesn't. It doesn't? It, it, all, it does is, all it does is that death does not deem a disposal, it deems an acquisition. So the acquisition of the asset is then in the is in the hands of the um, receiving benefit benefactor of the will and that type of thing. It doesn't deem a disposal on an on an investment property. Absolutely, yeah. Are you sure? Absolutely. I thought that triggered a capital no, it, gains it, tax event, it does, and that the estate would then have to pay no, capital gains on the on the no. on the asset. The only the only thing it triggers is an acquisition, not a disposal. Ah. Not talking Big. personal residence. We're talking. Mm, I know that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It it doesn't deem it. It doesn't de- deem it disposal. It deems an acquisition. You're hundred percent sure. Absolutely. Okay. Unless they have changed it in the last ten years, which I don't believe they have. All right. Okay. Because you can imagine the blue murder that they would have been screaming about. They would have said, "This is a de facto death duty." Blah 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 blah. You know, that's what they would have been screaming about. How long ago were death duties eliminated? Oh, in the seventies by Joby Elke Peterson. And the rest of the country? Mm, they followed soon after. So it's a state based tax. Yeah, it was yeah, a state based okay. tax. Mm. Trevor's googling my um I, I, I am inca- so. income yeah. tax advice. Yeah. yeah. Where's the trust? Exactly, there's no trust. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Wikipedia, capital gains tax in Australia. In such cases, the deceased is taken to have sold to the beneficiary at market value at the date of death and the usual capital gains tax applies. No, not on the sale. So the usual capital gains tax applies on the acquisition of that new asset. So that asset is deemed to be, dis- deemed to be transferred to the new beneficiary. So they will pay tax at some future date? Some future date when they sell it. On gains. On gains yes. when they sell it. Hmm. hmm. Might have to uh, you can investigate that. that. You can right investigate on. that further. Okay. Um, Beer sponsors. Do we have any? Yeah, we do. Oh, oh, good. Caitlin. Caitlin. Good on you, Caitlin. Thank Cheers, you very Caitlin. much, Caitlin. Yeah, we've, we've just been enjoying your Asahi Super Dry. Thank mm. you very much. We do appreciate that. Mm. And thank you to Was, Wayno, Landon, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Landon again, and Caitlin. Mm. Thank you to our patrons. Here's how it works, dear listener. If you're new to this program, to this podcast, you get 20 to 25 episodes completely free. Like, just listen. And, and if you get hooked and you find that by the end of episode 25, you can't wait for the podcast to come out and you must listen and you're checking your podcast app to see where it is, then at that point we say, right, you're up for it, and we expect a dollar an episode at least. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and the odd case of beer. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and if you're not, and if you're not, uh, and if you're at that point and you're not prepared to pay that, if you don't think it's worth a dollar, then go away because you're not <laughs> oh. doing us any favours. Oh. So that's why our yeah, podcast very numbers drop. Brutal, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we were up to four hundred at one stage, and then we dropped down to like two fifty. I think I, got rid of, I think I promptly got rid of one hundred and fifty on the basis of that. But, <laughs> Wouldn't but, surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you're not doing us any favours, and <laughs> and you haven't gained. A true insight into what we're talking about on this podcast. If you can't get the gist of that, you're, so you're tough, but you're fair, Trevor. The Iron Fist. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, uh, the beneficiary, 
Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy, Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt, J, Robbie, Rod, Palais, Maddockman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, the squeaky wheel, who wasn't happy with my comments last week, but I hope I clarified that squeaky wheel. <laughs> Daniel, uh, Car Battery, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aiden, Wheat Watcher, new patrons, Nico, Andy, and Murray, the non patrons, Dean, Ken, who's got a surprising resemblance to Sammy J. Uh, was the beneficiary David, uh, Mark, and Mr. Anderson. So thank you guys for for helping us out. This thank is, you very much. We mm. do appreciate it. Next week's a big number. Two hundred next week. Two hundred oh, next week. Yes, of course. Mm, which will be very close to four years, Scott. Bloody it's hell! Amazing, isn't it's it? Amazing. Yeah, it's gone quickly, hasn't it? Mm. I've got more grey hair, but less gut. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> They've all been healthy for you. <laughs> it's been healthy for me. Yeah. Maybe our actual fourth year anniversary might coincide with the election. It might, it might come very close to it. So, uh, May yeah. the 18th. Right. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, next week I think it's just going to be yet another episode. There's a guy who was trying to be a chaplain, a secular chaplain in religious hospitals. We might have next week. We'll see. Anyway. Oh, really? Mm. But I reckon uh, that's enough. With a bit of luck, I might have found my interview or my talk with John August when I was on his program. If so, I'll tack it on the end. If not, I'll look for it and tack it on at some other stage. But I reckon that's enough for us. So um, thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week. Yes, talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye now. Bye, everyone. And you're listening to John August on Roving Spotlight on Radio Skid Road, TRSR 88.9 FM. But maybe you've managed to figure that out yourself. I'm joined in the studio by Babu Gorgonini. And we have Trevor, I think it's Trevor Bell, who's is at the Iron Fist from the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Do we have that correct? That's correct, John, yes. Uh, the podcast is called The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. My name is Trevor Bell and uh, I'm the Iron Fist component of that title, yes. Yes, we, we have had uh, the odd uh, extract from you, I think, Han, too, talking about ch- Indonesia and maybe China and your comments, some of your comments about uh, human rights and religious privilege and so on. And uh, so, it, so I have played the odd extract from your show on my own show. But anyway, it is great to have you on, on the show. And I suppose so, because I, I might run out of time at the end, but give us a bit of a plug for your Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast and how people can access it. Uh, sure. If they just Google Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, uh, they'll, they'll come across us. Um, basically... We're an Australian podcast uh, produced weekly, usually go for about an hour and a half, and usually a panel discussion where we're looking at news and politics and events, mainly to do with Australia, but also around the world, and we have a particular emphasis on examining religions and what effect they're having on our society and our culture, and, and just the way the world is changing, and we look at things like identity politics and cultural appropriation, uh, so... The ills that are being committed on the left and on the right, and bemoaning the fact that there's not enough people taking a more centrist view of sort of uh, moral dilemmas. So we try and pick them apart. Um, I used to, well, I, I was a lawyer, but I, I retired from that many, many years ago. So there's a little bit of a legal element where we sort of pass things out in a, in a legal sense as well uh, when we're looking at these rights and wrongs. So. We try and make it entertaining for the listener and a bit informative. And but yeah, we have a particular interest in uh, religion and um, and also scepticism. So the sorts of things that Babu talks about. So um, okay. John, if I could just 
keep yeah, going. Go, go, I, go I ahead. Yeah. To your conversation with Babu and Babu, good to uh, talk to you. I was interested when you were talking about astrology and how some people, in order to defend themselves, said that their astrology was really a religion, and then that meant for you that it was kind of hands off to you at that point. Is that was that right? What happened there? Um, Trevor, good to talk to you. Um, yes, because if it is religion, then they can't really set up a business saying they have scientific accuracy. And the moment they say it's not about knowledge, it's about belief, it's easy to defeat it, is it not? So right. it's an approach in the argument, in the debate, in the strategy uh, one employs to defeat the influence of the astrologer. Because mm. astrology in India is promoted as science by its practitioners. And those who believe in it, believe in it because they think it's true. So once you shift it, its label to religion, I think half the battle or more than that is won. But still, if, if I can button briefly here, I mean, you still have to have a community understanding of exactly what science is, how science differs from religion, and whether someone can validly claim something is a science. Absolutely. And, yeah. and this is exactly what we try to do and usually manage to do in our discussions and debates. The astrologer sitting next to you is incidental to the great purpose of adult education that we use the opportunity of a half an hour or one hour airtime, broadcast time, to talk about what science is about and why this is not science. When it refuses to let itself be examined by the methods and parameters of science, there you go, it's lost. And surely that's a strategy, strategy that is working. We have tens of thousands of people who join us on Facebook I think my various Facebook accounts have about 350, 400,000 people associated with the activism I'm doing. I am certain a big majority of them are rationalists, skeptics, humanists, science popularizers, but surely some numbers are astrologers yeah. watching and, <laughs> and tracking us, for, checking out on what we are saying. Because they frequently in debates come up with references to what I have posted. Okay. Anyway, Trevor, I, I don't know, we, we, we can take the this discussion in, I think, a direction. Maybe you want to talk about particular things going on in Australian politics that you're passionate about. If you want to continue a, a line of thought that Babu has inspired with you, I, I'm happy either way, whatever you'd like to do. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways we could go. I, I guess before moving on to the Australian situation and our freedom of religion debate that we're having here, just while we've got Babu there, one of the things that strikes me about religion and superstition, Babu, is that um, I think it was Marx who said that you know religion is the opium of the masses, and it seems to be no coincidence that uh, belief in the supernatural and, and religions and stuff tends to be in those struggling, vulnerable communities. And if we look at it as sort of an aesthetic or a crutch or a means of getting through what might be a difficult life, if we're trying to whip away that, that crutch without replacing it with something else, um, people are going to be very reluctant. And I sort of feel that one of the difficulties with the secular atheist movement is 
offering the alternative to people to say, well, this mumbo-jumbo that you're believing in isn't, uh, isn't a good idea. And then in many cases, we just, we just say there's nothing. And really, we need to provide a framework for a, a useful, valuable life you know what I mean? And did you at all promote a sort of a... If, if I can butt in, I've, I've heard Babu yeah. speak on exactly this topic, but I, over right. to you, Babu. <laughs> uh, yes, Trevor, I think you make a very important point. It's not simply about strategy. It's also about the content of humanism, rationalism, the secular idea. We always say in India and elsewhere that humanism is an alternative, that people have a choice. They can move this way if they would like to. And the message of humanism, rationalism, is very positive. The message of common sense is very compelling. But it's a question of how do we package it? What kind of communication do we use to attract the attention and grab their ear? Because that's very important. People have to hear us out. I, for one, as to the first argument you referred to, which is frequently uh, thrown at us. If you take it away, if you take away the crutch, what what will they do and how can they live? To start with, they are not lame, they don't need the crutch. That's one thing. Second, if someone's got malaria, what should we replace malaria with when we take it away from them? We don't have to bother too much about it. We just have to build the alternative vision for humanism. And for that, all we need to do is ask them to look around them and at the achievements of science, of knowledge, uh, of modern societies. But I did say we need to have the communication device right, packaged correctly and delivered in a non-offensive manner. Um, you know, we, we frequently come across people who are telling us about the power of numbers, like numerology. So we are told that number nine is very powerful, number five is vibrating. So to ask where is it vibrating, and if they say nine is powerful, then we say 99 is even more powerful. These are things we deploy to defeat the argument. But then we have to assert that depending on a number, a colored stone, a talisman, a prayer is not a substitute for hard work, for real work. And we need to push people into thinking that as well. Wherever possible, we do that, Trevor. Otherwise, it would not be good enough. Well, well if I can butt in, uh, can, can, I'll try to butt in here. I realise we're all competing for time. But uh, one of the traditions on this radio station uh, goes back a long time. Uh, there's other shows, um, you know, the, the morning show. People were saying, look, it's good to identify injustices in the world, but at the same time you want to be resilient and you want to get on with it. So we've always tried to embrace those two things. But there's another thing I was speaking about with AC Grayling, and you sort of talk about what you can replace it with and i have to admit that it, it, with religion if you want to believe that you're going to have life hereafter that may be reassuring and the thing that that my narrative has developed it's not reassuring in a sense but it's this sense of the world makes sense and it's a personal thing but it involves economics it involves game theory it involves uh, mathematics statistics uh, political theory and of course the atheism and the humanism and the skepticism mixed in and even though you can say the world is messed up, you can look at it and go, ah, that makes sense. And 
in a perverse sort of way, even though you may have limited ability to change the world to do things you want, when you develop that richness of being able to appreciate the world in the way that I described, I mean, it's not quite the same as believing you're going to live after, after death, but there's a certain amount of warmth or uplift you get when you've developed that sort of view of the world. So I will say there's an alternative there, but you, you can't wave a magic wand and, and give people this appreciation because I can sort of start to articulate in words now, but it's very hard to put into words. It's this very rich thing with a lot of depth. But but anyway, um, Trevor, anything else you want to sort of add, add to that? Uh, I, I would just say that really if if... If I was to embark on a program of trying to convince people away from superstition, one of the key things I'd be trying to do is just improve their socioeconomic status. And when they're not, when people aren't desperate, and then they'll be more open to these sorts of ideas. So, I guess you know when you when you gave them the the, uh, the malaria example, I mean people don't build a life around malaria but people do build a life around religion and their community and you know you take a Mormon for example who who has built up a, all of their friends are Mormons all of their um, work associations their spare time everything is in that community and to for them to lose that religion means they lose all of that community as well and it's it's, it's incredibly hard for somebody to give all that up Yes, well, I'd agree. Um, you're, you're, you're not just shredding a belief, you're shedding a whole social network. And, you know, echoing what you've said, Trevor, I guess I, I thought of this, I didn't quite get around to bringing it up. But certainly one aspect of this is knowledge, but another is hardship. And to some, sometimes you can say, look, you know, this is the old thing of nature, nurture, politics, government intervention. But we can say that people's circumstance might be a function of the environment. You know, one could even argue that our advertising world is setting up people with false expectations. OK, you're, you're taking the, the, the cause away from the individual. But you could also say the person is not dealing with life effectively and there's this vicious feedback loop. Uh, where they have false expectations, false hopes, they get dashed, they end up even further behind, and it's this nasty circle. So, you know, yeah, the environment should be good and people should be competent in leaving their, leading their lives, but certainly it's not just knowledge, it's also hardship, and if you had less hardship, people would be less, wouldn't be as desperate, wouldn't be seeking religion. Yes, yeah. So... Um uh, just to move on to a, a new topic then, yep. I guess one of my um, key things that we've been talking about on the podcast a lot is, is religious freedom. And Babu, we've had a big discussion here in Australia about religious freedom over the last 12 to 18 months and the government um, uh, instituted an inquiry um, called the, the Ruddock Review and um, they were looking, calling for submissions about religious freedom in Australia and... and Lots of religious groups put in submissions saying that their freedoms are under threat and that they need more you know, legislative protection. And probably the secular atheist groups were putting in submissions saying that you know, freedoms are already protected probably too much and too many privileges are given to religious groups. And um, one of the things that's sort of a hot topic at the moment is in relation particularly with the Anglican schools in your Sydney area there, John, is this issue that uh, these private religious schools are able to discriminate against um, gay teachers and gay students. So they currently have the ability to uh, refuse enrolment for gay students and to 
you know, refuse to employ gay teachers. And, and that's a special exemption that... And, that, and, uh, and I would, would break in, have. not that I've heard it on your show, but to give the yeah. Jewish schools a bit of credit, and I mean, I do take a mm. swipe at Israel on this program from time to time, but the mm. Jewish schools, at least in Sydney, probably New South Wales, have not sought that religious privilege to uh, discriminate against gays. So I must say good yeah. on them for that. Yeah, that, That's true. There's a, there's a variation, and, and even within the Anglican schools, there's a variation of belief there. But I guess uh, for the listeners who are hearing discussions about this and, and they'll be hearing the line that it's really a balancing of rights. It's a balancing of the right of, of a school and a community to practice their religious belief and to conduct a sort of an ethos in their community versus the, uh, the, the rights of, of a gay teacher to be employed. And I'll say it's, it's, a, it's a balancing of rights and, and the answer falls somewhere in the middle. And what I wanted to do was just to help people out in these discussions um, and, and to give an example where the, the rights here are quite different because uh, the, the rights that the religious groups are asserting, I say, is based on, on an identity that re relies on an ideological content, whereas the rights that are being asserted by the gay teachers, for example, uh, are rights that are relying on an, an, an innate characteristic. And uh, to give an example, in the area of criticism, so Margaret Thatcher, for example, uh, rightly could be criticised for her neoliberal policies, and we could argue back and forth about whether they were good or bad, um, brilliant or terrible, and, and that's a legitimate thing to do. But we couldn't sit and argue that uh, her gender was something to be discussed and criticised, like... So her ideology could be criticised, but not her gender. And, and the reason is that gender, skin colour, sexual preference, these sorts of things are innate. People, people don't get to choose them, they just have them. And these are the sorts of characteristics that deserve more protection than uh, characteristics that rely on ideological content. And... So I guess I'm saying to people, if you're in a dinner party conversation or around the water cooler, and it's a balancing of rights issues with these schools, I, I never hear it discussed in the public domain, but really we've got to say, hang on a minute, uh, there's no choice here. It's an innate quality for a teacher, their sexual preference. But what the school is doing is, is a characteristic based on ideology, and that ideology can be, can be criticised. It, it's up for criticism and debate. And... Uh, and in that sense, then, the rights of, the, of people when it comes to their skin colour, gender and sexual preference far outweigh rights that are associated with uh, ideological content. And if there's a balancing between the two, then it's got to fall on the side of the person with the innate characteristic. Well, Trevor, on the one hand, I, I totally agree with you, but I would also say political nature of discussion in Australia is a lot of voters don't really have nuanced philosophical understanding about the nature of rights and how these things play out. So it's like putty in the hands of the religious people in the politicians. But, but yeah. Barbara, maybe you want to say something else. Um, yes, I mean, what Trevor said is very, very important, I think, um, the balancing of rights. Uh, but I would say that I have no quarrel with the religion so long as human rights are not impacted. And here, clearly, they are. Um, in India right now, just as we speak, 
there's a huge battle in the southern southernmost state of india kerala where the temple administration decided like they have been doing for the many many decades now that no woman of menstruating age would be allowed into the temple so you have to be either below 10 or above 50 to be allowed in the into the presence of the lord uh, in the temple and a huge battle is on the supreme court of india said the women who are devotees of this god should be allowed to go in without any question but thousands of people have been protesting stopping some young women who wanted to go there to assert their rights i think like trevor said what you can't change what you're born with what is not necessarily your idea that you developed after thinking should not and should never be the basis of discrimination against someone gender sexual orientation identity language race and so on very often we find that religion does support what human rights analysts will believe is a violation of that right and therefore we have to oppose it the reason i thought of malaria or something else equally damaging is that um that it's damaging people living in a very broadly secular society like in australia you would normally not feel the heat so much uh, but when you are in africa south asia you are in pakistan being charged with blasphemy which can result in a conviction can result in the death penalty simply for saying something you know when word or thought become criminal we have really lost the plot but that's the situation in bangladesh too Nepal is doing broadly okay. Um so in all these countries religion takes on a different dimension. It provides cover to superstition and it will let those who are violating human rights take refuge behind it. So yeah, it's not correct that these schools here in New South Wales or wherever else uh, will not allow people because of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. that would be a travesty of justice yeah margaret thatcher is the one who started this thing with the gay people in in the uk because they put in this idea of promoting homosexuality but nobody is promoting homosexuality that's who you are that's your sexual orientation and identity Well, anyway, gentlemen, I think we do need to bring this session to a close. But uh, Trevor, uh, any last last comments before we move on? Oh, you'll have to have me back, John. I have a whole list of things to go through. Well, uh, well, certainly with Babu, we didn't talk about international human rights, and we didn't. Well, we talked a little bit about about uh, secular issues in Australia. So I'm, I'm sure could, sure we can get you on again at some stage. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I guess with international human rights, just briefly, there's a distinction between the freedom to worship. and the freedom to practice and it's an ironclad freedom when it comes to your freedom of thought and worship but when it comes to practice and manifesting it then then you've got the problem where you come into potential conflict with other rights and that's where that's where your so-called freedoms might be impinged and that's just a recognized fact around the world and religious groups here have to get used to it Okay. All right. Well, look, thank you very much, Trevor. We'll certainly have you on the program again and maybe I uh, will yet phone you up and join you on your own podcast. So, there you go. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks. If I 
Yeah. Iron fifth and a vibe with love. Real shit. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.